This is the East TraumaCast. Good evening and welcome to the next edition of the TraumaCast. It is March 26th and tonight we're bringing you a two-part series on managing surgical patients during the COVID-19 outbreak. I know for me at least, it seems like I'm getting bombarded with COVID information everywhere that I turn. I've gotten an email pretty much from every company I've ever given my email to since the year 2000. But in review of the online information and the amount of data that's out there, we felt there was a need for TraumaCast to address the care of the surgical patients. A couple of thoughts before we get started. First, this won't be a comprehensive everything you should know about the COVID. We'll be talking until tomorrow morning if we even tried to do that. This will be a discussion focused specifically on trauma, emergency general surgery, and SICU patients with regard to our current guidelines and best practices. Second, information changes daily. Please continue to do your own research and use our discussion as a guide for today. And lastly, I called it best practices, but we don't always have a great answer for what's best right now. More like we're going to talk about the data, the facts because we know them right now. Our panel of guests are leaders within East and have decades of experience. Each of our comments are our own and should not be considered that any of us are speaking on behalf of our hospitals. Now that the legal disclaimer part is out of the way, let's get on with it. As usual, we'll start with each guest taking the opportunity to introduce themselves and let us know where they're from and their role in East. Let's start with a familiar East member to us all. Britt, would you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Britt Christmas from Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm your current president of East. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Valdez for inviting me to participate today. Sure. Matt, you want to go ahead? Yeah. Hi, this is Matt Martin. I'm in San Diego, California now. I was the former chair of the East Education Division, and, and now I'm just a has-been senior member. And uh, Red has also joined us as a, one of our new TraumaCast moderators. Red, if you'd remind everybody where you're from. Sure. I'm Red Hoffman, and I'm currently in Asheville, North Carolina. Great. So let's uh, get right to it. We have a lot of information to cover in a short amount of time. So how are you all deciding who gets to have surgery right now? I know for us right now, we're still managing in, in terms of emergent surgery is still emergent surgery. If patients come in and clearly meet the criteria for anything that we would do on an emergent basis, we'll go to the OR. We're still acute cholecystitis, appendectomies. We've also enacted a protocol, if you will, for our operating room where we are still able to do cases, say, for patients that have fast-growing cancers or things that are of concern that we know can't wait past a 30-day, you know, 60-day period. That being said, in order to try and make capacity within our ICUs and our floors, anything that would be considered, you know, more elective or, or that can be put off past 30 to 60 days, all of those cases at our institution uh, stopped about, about a week ago. Matt, how about you? How are you doing at your hospital? Yeah, I think we're pretty similar. We stopped doing elective cases a couple weeks ago. We have not really changed our practices in terms of urgent or emergent general surgery, just because we're not we're not in a resource constrained or uh, near constrained environment yet where we are. Uh, so really, not much has changed on the emergency general surgery side, other than our volume seems to be down a little bit uh, just because of people staying home and staying away from hospitals. Our hospital also kind of established a, a committee and some guidelines to decide on those in-between cases, like Britt was mentioning, you know, the, the cancer case and that they feel I can't wait, things like a hernia with just severe pain that's limiting someone's activity, uh, and they're able to decide those on a case-by-case -case basis about whether that should go. And I think we're in that position for two reasons. We're a lot earlier in the COVID epidemic versus the East Coast. 
Uh, and two, I think our, our leadership was really proactive about getting us stocked up with PPE and supplies and, and personnel. So, so we're actually in a pretty good position right now and not to the point where, where we're really having to start to ration things. Can you send some our way, Matt? <laughs> I, I, I'll see what our CEO can do. Okay. I would be satisfied if somebody sent a roll of toilet paper to my house or a bidet. <laughs> oh, oh, we can't, we can't get toilet paper at the supermarket. Yeah, I, I, I didn't say that. And, and I am kidding for any listener out there. Please do not start sending stuff to my house. <laughs> I think I'll be okay. <laughs> we look for national guidance on how we decide who gets surgery, when they get surgery, what kind of surgery. And the American College of Surgeons published some guidelines a few days ago that weren't popular, and they've changed them just as recently as the past 24 hours. Can either of you highlight? Maybe why the first guidelines came out? Why did we change them? Were the first guidelines correct? Are the second guidelines correct? Which way should we be following? I, I think the first guidelines, as they came out, are meant to be a reference as we start to lose resources. Um, when, you know, for many of us, our ORs may be converted into, you know, into ICUs and using whatever ventilators we can find. So I, I think that was what created a lot of hesitation early on was we've already implemented, as, as Matt said, stopping elective surgeries. And for many of us where our resources haven't begun to become depleted yet, it did. It created some consternation when we were looking at the possibility of, are we going to treat all of our appendixes with antibiotics and think about putting percutaneous cholecystostomy tubes in the acute cholecystitis? So I think once that was clarified, then we realized that those were recommendations for situation in which we'll get into a lack of resources. More of like a, that was a crisis plan, not a current plan for right now. And I think part of what caused the confusion and consternation, well, there were a couple things. Part was exactly that, is it really didn't specify, well, what setting or conditions are you talking about when you're enacting these guidelines? Because those guidelines might be wholly appropriate for New York right now, but they're probably inappropriate for 90% of the country right now who's not in that situation. And so that's the one thing they did on the revisions is they very nicely clarified, well, here's the different scenarios you might be in. And I think that's when we're talking about rationing and triaging surgery, the, the first thing we should do is, you know, we, we do a primary and secondary survey in ATLS. And in the military, we talk about a zero survey for mass cow or disaster care. And that's where you stop. You look around at your setting, your resources. How many surgeons do I have? What, what's my supply? What's my blood supply? And you'll triage very differently based on that zero survey. You'll triage differently from day to day based on that. So, so I think the most important thing is you, you first do that assessment and say, okay, Am I pretty green on all my supplies and I can kind of do business as usual? Are we starting to run low on supplies and I need to start modifying my standard? Or are we in you know, true crisis mode? And that's, that was the one problem with those guidelines. They were really of written as you're in crisis mode where you almost have no capability to do surgery and you're conserving your resources for everything else. The second part of those that I think caused consternation I think they were written without an appreciation for the downstream effects of some of them that, that in my opinion, in the end, would have resulted in more resource utilization of waste. And, and I think the biggest ones were the biliary recommendations. 
one of the recommendations was doing a perk cholecystostomy tube for everything starting from symptomatic cholelithiasis that wasn't resolving on up to acute cholecystitis and cholangitis. And while that might save you a couple OR gowns and resources up front because you're not doing a cholecystectomy, and the data on this is pretty clear, those patients require way more resources, way more re-interventions, and have a higher failure rate with a per coli tube. So probably in the balance, what you've done there is you've now turned that patient into someone who's going to require a longer hospital stay, more return visits, more reinterventions. So, so in the long term, that would have been a big negative on your resources, your PPE use, et cetera. And, and I think they did a great job on the revised guidelines of taking that into account and saying, you know, here, here's some good recommendations and factoring in both the upfront resources and the likelihood of if this intervention is going to get the patient out of the hospital and recovered faster or not. I think that was the concern too with the acute appendicitis patients. You know, when we think of the studies that showed let's hospitalize them and give them three days of IV antibiotics and then send them home. It was the same thing. How many resources and how many hospital beds are we going to be utilizing as compared to getting them in the operating room overnight and discharging them the next morning? But I was impressed with the college's willingness to admit that perhaps they overstepped on some level and to come out with changes so quickly. I know Kim Davis, Eileen Bulger, Ronnie Stewart, Clay Cothran, uh, and several other, Dave Spain were, were the key authors of those revised guidelines. So I'd like to recognize and congratulate them and anyone else who worked on those because the revised guidelines are, are really good. So let's start talking about some patients. One of the ones you mentioned was an acute appendicitis. So patient is 24 years old, comes in with a white count of 14, fever of 38 no respiratory symptoms whatsoever, right lower quadrant pain for 12 hours. I mean, this is pretty straightforward acute appendicitis. Regardless, they're going to get a CAT scan of their abdomen and their pelvis. Should we be considering in these patients, go ahead and including the chest, because there's some suggestions that the chest CT has got some sensitivity to picking up on COVID patients even before the nasal swab would pick up on that. What do you guys think about doing that? Currently, we are not adding CT chests or routine screening. Uh, I think the question comes into, is it going to be part of our trauma evaluation and do they need the scans in the first place? If so, then we have the CT chest and we can can go and look. But in a patient with appendicitis, uh, we know there's a statement from the American College of Radiology that chest CT screening is, is not really beneficial towards a routine basis. And the appendicitis patient that you mentioned, no adding the CT chest. If I've got a trauma patient with a trauma eval and they're going to get a CT chest, then we'll, we'll certainly look at it and, and it, it can certainly increase your suspicion, but not as routine screening at this point. I'd agree with all of that. And the, the caveat would be if we have any suspicion, if they're having any potential COVID symptoms, and we're already scanning the abdomen, then we will just add on the chest. Uh, one, because I think it does give you some useful information, mostly if it's completely negative, that makes you feel a lot better that the patients, their symptoms probably aren't from the coronavirus. Uh, and then the other caveat is, you know, if that patient gets worse and turns out to be COVID positive, and, and then you know, the intensivists or whoever want a CAT scan of their chest, we already have it done and they're not having to go back down 
and contaminate the CAT scanner. And then the scanner is shut down for two hours for decontamination. If so, if this guy had fevers or a cough or, you know, some other symptoms where he said, eh, well, then we would just add the, the CAT scan because it's, it's essentially no additional radiation. They're already, they're already scanning half the chest when you're scanning the abdomen. The other thing that a lot of people are pushing is ultrasound for, you know, assessing findings of COVID and then using serial ones to look at, are they progressing with treatment, which I think is interesting. And, and that removes that contaminating the CAT scan issue. In fact, there's one physician on Twitter who has coronavirus and he's been posting like daily ultrasounds of his own lungs to, to show the changes <laughs> as the disease progresses. Uh, we, have not, we have not started doing that, but I think that's that's interesting option. I've been following him as well. It's been amazing to watch. <laughs> Yeah, the the B lines and the the reverb, they're, yep. they're great images. <laughs> okay, so the patient we talked about earlier, twenty four year old kid with a nappy, and we don't suspect that he has any any viral disease in his lungs, let alone COVID. Is it reasonable to start making some of our local hospitals be COVID free, and maybe we actually would ship this guy to you know a secondary hospital? Then the general surgeons who have all been essentially told not to work on elective cases, they could do those cases for us. It frees up resources, it frees up ORs, it frees up space. I guess we call it the reverse transfer. Is that something we should be putting into place and setting protocols up for now? You know, I I think that by the time this is all said and done, there's not going to be any such thing as a COVID-free hospital. Just because of the way our hospital licensing is set up in our facilities, we've already had a protocol in place where um, uh, several general surgery cases will go to another one of our hospitals under, under our same license. It's right here in close proximity, but that is an effort to maintain as many beds as possible for the sickest patients. Uh, under these circumstances, that's the same thing we're looking at is, is knowing that our central location where we take care of the sickest patients in the re- region, no matter whether it's, it's a pandemic or on a day-to-day basis, we're doing everything we can to maximize the number of beds at this facility. But I, I don't think hospitals should be transferring appies, gallbladders, and just sending them to another hospital thinking you're going to be able to keep one of them COVID-free because that's just not going to happen. We know this has been circulating in the community for a while, and and we can't even predict at times who's going to come in and test positive or negative at this point. Yeah, and, and we also know there's a relatively long asymptomatic period when you're, you're definitely infectious. So I wouldn't do that with the thought of we're going to set up COVID-free zones but I think you're exactly right on that. That's exactly what we should be doing when you have a system that's starting to get stressed is they should be transferring those out to systems that aren't as stressed and have open bed space. And, and New York City is a great example right now. I mean, they're overrun and patients are dying. And, you know, there's tons of open ICU beds in other parts of the state. You know, then you run into insurance issues and transferring across systems issues and just the reluctance for especially our big academic centers and our level one centers. And we, you know, we like to say, you know, everything transfers to us. And so, you know, it's almost a point of pride. Oh, we, we can never transfer a patient from our center to a lower level center. But, but I think that's exactly the kind of thinking we need to change to 
and especially in the areas that are that are going to be the hardest hit. So we're not going to transfer this kid. I agree with that. We're not going to use EMS transport. And plus it also delays care. I mean, by the time we actually get someone to come pick him up and drive him over to our local hospital, then how many more hours is he yeah. sitting with his appendicitis? Well, that may no, I, no I, I would say if you're, you know, if your ICU is starting to fill up with COVIDs and you're intubating patients, you know, in the ER, absolutely transfer that guy. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, currently, at least at my hospital, we can manage the app, you know, problem. Okay. So right now, if I didn't transfer him and we're going to take him into the OR, let's start talking about our three phases, our intubation phase, the actual surgery, and then extubation phase. So have you all changed any of the ways that you're doing your intubation measures for either the asymptomatic patient, the suspected patient, or the COVID-positive patient? Before we do that, Rand, if I could just ask everybody currently, what is it taking in your hospitals for a COVID test? Uh, at my place, we we kind of we have the rapid version we can use on inpatients, and then we have the send out longer version for generally outpatients or patients who are discharging from the ER. And the rapid version, the earliest, is about eighteen to twenty four hours, and the slower version is taking seven to ten days. And we we just recently got that twenty four hour inpatient version, so that's a problem right there. Is you know the the quickest we can get an answer is eighteen to twenty four hours. So for us, we're similar. We've been fortunate enough. We're able to get the 18 to 24 hour test because we have that in house, unlike several other hospitals that are having to send that off still. For our outpatient settings, and like you said, people that are not going to be in the hospital, the same kind of turnaround. Usually we're looking at about five to seven days for that test. But I also know some other other regional hospitals that are not able to yet to get the testing done within their own walls. And so they're not fortunate enough to have that 24-hour turnaround. Yeah, in our system, we do not have that yet. And so it's taking four to five days for inpatients. Every uh, employee has to take a survey before you come to work. I popped positive and flagged because I have a new cough from allergies. And I got cleared and I got to go to work. But the uh, COVID physician I was speaking to said, we now can do the 24-hour turnaround for anybody who will be in the hospital, whether that's an employee or a patient. And then, again, similar to you guys, we're about a week out for getting results for anybody who stays in the community. However, if a community person gets sicker and comes into the hospital, they get retested and get the faster test. And I think relevant to you know, our lives as trauma surgeons, one problem we're running into uh, has been the homeless population because the rules – for us, we're saying they're not going to be admitted and, you know, they're okay to discharge. And many of those patients are, you can't get the 18 hour test. You, you really can't discharge those patients because there's no discharging them to a safe social distancing setting. Uh, and so we finally had to do a workaround where we're holding them in the ER, kind of a pseudo admission, getting the rapid test. They're, they're the one exception to the, you know, doesn't need to be regularly admitted that's a real issue is, is handling the homeless population where obviously this, this thing is spreading fastest. So to our patient that's going to be intubated, I think we've ruled out the first case where it's a non-COVID patient because we don't know. Everybody's kind of in a pseudo-suspected state at the moment or confirmed. How are you all doing your intubations? Yeah, so for us, when the patients go to the operating room, it's basically an assumption that the patient would be positive as far as precautions. Whenever the innovations are being done, it is the minimal number of people in the room, uh, surgeons outside the room, 
all innovations, aerosolizing procedures for airways are being done with the N95 mask. During the case, anything we can do to limit the aerosolization uh, to include laparoscopy. And then for extubations, that only the anesthesia team is in the room for the extubation and try and allow the oxygen to or air in the OR to go through one good circulation anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes before other people enter. Matt and Red, have you guys started to change your intubation processes? Everybody's getting intubated with some form of PPE that's assuming aerosolization, so N95 you know, PAPR, if somebody's COVID positive or strongly suspected, we're using generally video laryngoscopy as much as possible. So you you avoid having to lean down and, you know, put your face close to the patient's mouth in most cases. Uh, And then similar to what Britt said, I would have the team wait outside of the room for the 20 to 30 minutes until you have uh, complete air circulation. Yeah, so my hospital, we haven't gotten any specific guidelines. I mean, I've certainly told my residents, like, you're just not going to be in the room during this, and I stay out of the room. And so I'm not exactly sure what anesthesia is doing in the room, but I just said we need to minimize who's in the room during that time, regardless if they are someone like this young person with no symptoms or someone who's a person under investigation or positive. We're just, I just said we're treating it all the same. So in the surgery itself, Britt, you had mentioned laparoscopic surgery. What kind of things can we do and should we be doing based on the information we know so far to minimize aerosolization? Because there's certainly plenty of information out there that laparoscopic surgery might be too dangerous. We should be converting all these cases back to open surgeries. We certainly haven't taken that stance. We're using filters, everything we can do to minimize aerosol spray and The tenet is that whatever you're able to get in there and do and get in and out quickly, follow those procedures. Because if, say, we go in and somebody is better laparoscopically and you do an open procedure, it takes longer, it's more risk to the patient, more risk to the team. So that's the approach we're taking. You know, minimize cautery to the extent that you can. Make sure you use smoke evacuators. And really, that's our stance on it at this point. Yeah, there's, there was a nice EPUB ahead of print that's available on, in Annals of Surgery, I think. And it has some minimally invasive surgery guidelines from surgeons who were dealing with COVID in Italy and China. Uh, and the first thing I think we need to recognize is none of them are evidence-based. People keep screaming, you know, well, why don't we have data? Why don't we have data? You know, th- this is a new virus <laughs> that's been around for, what, four months, and people are wanting to know, you know, why, why we don't have, you know, extensive basic science studies on this. But the th- current thought is that it does have a high likelihood that it could be aerosolized during procedures in the abdomen. First question was, do you even have coronavirus in your abdomen? Because it's primarily a respiratory virus. And, and even that we're not sure of. There's a couple studies that show the RNA is in the feces, though, so it's likely in the GI tract. There's data from the SARS coronavirus 1 that actually traced what organs it went to, and that virus did go throughout the GI tract. So I think based on those, we have to assume it's there, and then if you're doing things that will aerosolize it, like harmonic scalpel, like a lot of bovying, again, we'll have to assume that it's, it's aerosolized and it could be in that smoke. 
So similar to what Britt said, you know, our, our practices are, are evolving and, and what they're going to be is, you know, low, low insufflation pressure as low as you can get away with. And, and, and the big high risk events are when you're doing instrument changes and there's some, some uh, CO2 escaping, but the, probably the biggest high risk event is when you vent the port either during the case or at the end of the case. And so you really need the change to, I, I would use a smoke evacuator. There's no externally venting the ports. If you're going to vent them, you need to either vent it into some type of filter or we, we will just hook a suction tubing up to it and vent it into a suction canister. That has been the, the hardest part about this, right? That this is a virus that we don't have a lot of information and everything that we are doing and, and local protocols and everything we're trying to manage, a lot of us are truly figuring out while on the move. It is the classic example of we're having to build the plane as we're flying it because right now these are the best options we've got. There are other options, and I wanted to explore a couple. We'll, we'll kind of stay on the appy patient because it's a pretty generic case. Could we do an epidural for laparoscopic appendectomy and avoid intubation? Or could we do an epidural and just do it open and avoid intubation and avoid laparoscopic surgery? You know, I, I think that in medicine, what we find is when we start deviating from our more routine practices. And granted, with this pandemic, it's not routine. But a lot of the cases that we do, when we start overthinking and making it too complex, we get ourselves into situations where, say, the patient could move during the procedure, or we don't have things as controlled as we would like them. We get into bleeding. We do things that actually extend the case itself, but then maybe we don't do as well for our patient. You know, I, I think that from my standpoint, I would say best thing would be get the airway and try and do the case in as normal a fashion as I we would in order to try and get done expeditiously and get out of that room. Yeah, don't do laparoscopy with an epidural. All you're going to do is turn that into a struggle of a case where you're probably going to have more risk of aerosolization, a longer case, and a higher risk of complications. For the open case, I think that really goes to, well, how how well is your system set up to you know innovate with the full precautions? How fast can you get an epidural down? And can you do the procedure in a similar time under an epidural? So... Something like, you know, a badly incarcerated hernia where the relaxation is really going to help you? No, but like a straightforward routine open appy. For example, let's say this appy patient and you're at one of these places where you're, you're essentially out or almost out of N95 masks. And so now you want to do everything you can to avoid having to innovate where you have to use that PPE. That would be a scenario where I think it would be perfectly fine to give them an epidural, do an open appy. Uh, you know, and then you, you've avoided that innovation risk. So I, I think it's select cases, but I agree 100% with Britt. It's like when you have a, a VIP patient and you start doing everything different because they're a VIP, you always get a complication <laughs> that was avoidable, right? right. So, so you, you really want to try to avoid just doing crazy things without a, a good reason and then make you deviate from your norm. And one thing I'll add to that, I do quite a bit of uh, surgical missions in Peru, and we do a majority of our cases are under epidural. 
but they're always on a bed where if we run into trouble, the backup plan is intubation. So if you had a complication during an epidural, now the entire team is in the room trying to control a bleed or an enterotomy or something, and you're doing the intubation with the entire team in the room and not having a chance for 20 minutes to let the air circulate. And I'd add, especially if you have, let's say, let's say you have a COVID positive patient, what's the highest risk of them aerosolizing and contaminating? It's not going to be intubation. It's going to be having them non-intubated and coughing throughout the procedure, mm, you know, especially sure. if you don't have a, a good mass sealed on them. Again, you have to factor both sides in the equation, right? If they're a coughing COVID positive patient, you're probably lowering your risk by innovating them. In fact, that you know, China and Italy were talking about innovation as a source control technique. So we've gotten our guy through the procedure and he gets to go home. Now we go back upstairs the next day and we're going to work in the ICU or in trauma. And there are procedures that are necessary in those fields. So let's start with uh, the tracheostomy. At least in my hospital, the SICU attending is the one who does the consult for the tracheostomy. How do I figure out if this patient's safe? How do I figure out what PPE I'm supposed to wear? And how do I figure out which trainees, if any, I bring with me? Because it's usually a two-person procedure. We actually um, have discussed this at length over the last week at our institution. And we've put together a protocol for these patients that for any patient that we are going to do a tracheostomy on, we are going to get a COVID screening test on these patients and wait for that to come back. And we decided this knowing that plenty of people with delayed symptoms that were asymptomatic are are out in the community, knowing that a tracheostomy is an elective procedure, we are screening before we do the procedure. Now for patients that are positive, given what we've seen and, and what people have have found with these patients dying of cardiomyopathy, even after their pulmonary status had started to show some improvements on the ventilator, that we are waiting a period until roughly they get 20 days is is what we're looking at. Normally, we would perform trachs much quicker, but if we have the resources, waiting for them to have decreased viral shedding and get to the phase that we know they're going to survive so as not to put our providers at risk, run the risk of aerosolization in the ICUs and and everywhere else. That being said, we could get in a resource crunch like everybody else. And, you know, when you develop your protocols, they may have to change. That's currently what we've looked at and and what we're planning to follow unless we we begin to get into a crunch. As far as who assists, minimum number of of people to try and limit provider exposures. We're planning to do these within the ICUs to avoid transport, contamination of OR personnel, etc. And whenever we do that, the attending and assistant really if needed, a respiratory therapist in the room to to assist with the airway portion, you know, really nursing to to push drugs, help otherwise try and be out of the room, especially when doing the the tracheostomy itself. When entering the trach, try and avoid using electrocautery. And another thing where, you know, that we've we've said we're going to do in these patients is certainly a breath hold during the period at which the endotracheal tube is coming back and tracheostomy tube going in, at least for those that are open. 
if the anatomy and the vent settings allowed, would you prefer to be doing a perk trach in these people or an open trach? We would prefer to try and do percutaneous. From a personal standpoint, I think it is really whatever the provider is most comfortable with that can do the procedure, do it safely, have as little exposure time as possible to do the procedure. Because we all know you've, you've had perk traits that don't always go as planned. And I, I would say whatever your provider is most comfortable with and, and getting in, getting out, that would be my, my recommendation. But yes, in our protocol, we do say if you can do it percutaneously and, and you feel that it's the right thing to do to try and do that preferentially. And Red, I'm going to lean on your palliative care hat for just a moment. Two questions uh, related to what Britt was discussing. First, how do you feel kind of ethically and from a patient care perspective about, quote, delaying trachs to 20 days until we know the patient's going to survive? Or there are hospitals out there right now who simply say we're not traching any COVID-19 patient because of the staff risk and the mortality rate that it's a futile event. Yeah. So obviously I've been thinking a lot about this and I, I think before we think in those terms, I really think it's important to circle back and be talking to the families about goals of care, kind of focusing on what's been going on with the patient. Because you could say if this is a somewhat older patient who has comorbidities, who's already been on the ventilator for 20 days and perhaps has had some cardiac symptoms associated with this, you know, what are our goals of care and can we really achieve them at this point? So instead of focusing right on, well, we're not going to do this because you're a certain age, it's kind of focusing on the patient and the family first. I think that's a lot um, more palatable for the patient and the family to deal with rather than saying, we're going to ration your care at this point. Matt, you have some experience with this, with resource allocation in traumatic settings when you're deployed. How, How do you handle it? Yeah, well, again, this this is you look at your settings and what your scenario is. And I think in general, most places would do what Brit is doing and say, we're going to stop doing early trachs. It's just another risk exposure event that also wastes PPE, et cetera. And then if we can give them the time to prove they're COVID negative, or even if not, we're just going to do delayed trachs if they need it and they're unable to wean from the vent. When you get into more of a constrained situation where you're out of vents and you're talking about splitting vents, you know, again, like they're talking about in New York now, that's somewhere where you might say, okay, we have to start tracking some of these patients just because it's a means of getting them separated from the vent sooner. But as of right now, yeah, we, we we're doing exactly what Britt would say. We are, we're not doing any early trachs. If we have to do a trach, it, it'll be, and it's a COVID positive patient, it'll be at a negative pressure room. And I, I agree it should be, you do it bedside, you know, don't go to the OR and waste all that. Uh, and I think probably the optimal technique in terms of avoiding, you know, as much aerosolization, getting it done quickly and safely, at least for me, would be doing an, an open cut down to expose the trach where you're going to put the tracheostomy and then using a direct percutaneous technique to actually put it into the trachea. So, so Britt, you said you guys are going to do perk trachs. Are you doing that under bronchoscopic guidance? then that means you now have another person and a bronchoscope that have to come in and, you know, get contaminated. 
you know, another thing looking at is is to avoid doing bronchoscopies on on all patients right now. That if we're suspecting pneumonia, whatever, and can get information that that we've all argued right for years that may be just as good as doing bronchoscopy, but now especially minimizing the aerosolization risk. I'm like you with my perchrakes, and I would rather cut down and you can almost call it a modified technique where I cut down, see it, and then don't have to use the bronchoscope for that exact reason that you mentioned. Real quick before we go to that, and Carrie, you, this came up in both talking about surgery and the trach and intubation. It's going to be the senior person. There's only going to be you know the minimal number of personnel in the room, and we want it done as fast as possible. And what we haven't talked about a lot are what the impacts of that are on training. Because, you know, I, I know we're, we're all working with residents, fellows, anesthesia is, et cetera. And, and, you know, there are guidelines and a lot of systems saying we're just having the attending surgeon do these. We're not letting the resident be in the room or, you know, the residents in the room and they could just drive the camera and we want the attending to do it to get it done as fast as possible. And, and just interested if, if any of you have changed to that practice or if you're still kind of doing business as usual with residents and fellows. I know for us, it's uh, it's still business as usual unless we have a confirmed positive case or, you know, I would say person under suspicion. But for those that are positive, you know, we're not we haven't had to do the trach yet, but that's that's how it'll be. Otherwise, we're still business as usual, which then also gets to staffing. Right. I mean, this pandemic has changed the way we think and look at everything. And we've kicked more into the mode of having our residents, attendings, everybody on and, you know, seven day stretches or some services, even 14, just trying to make sure we minimize exposure. And if we do have exposures, that it's staggered as such that we are able to maintain as many providers on the ground as possible. What this will mean for training during these three months and everything, I think, is yet to be determined. But I think several of us have the same concerns that, that you do, Matt. I mean, we've shut down elective surgery almost completely. And then on top of that, we're now saying, oh, and you also can't participate in any you know, emergent surgery or emergent trauma surgery or bedside procedures. Uh, you know, I think we have to remember the, these people still need to be trained. Uh, Rhett, Red, and Carrie, or what are you guys doing at your institutions? We, too, have limited the number of residents that are on service. I feel certainly <laughs> protective of my younger residents, but at the same time, oh, yeah. I also feel like I want them to have these experiences. Yeah, so so are, you, are, you still out, are you still having residents do these cases then? With you. I, I, I mean, we were talking about for the trait cases that it would definitely just be two attendings in the room and that the residents would not be there. Okay. Um, yeah. We're even trying to minimize attendings. You know, if you need the assistance to come in, but try and limit the exposures just so we can keep as many attendings in the box as possible. Now, that being said, the other thing is that we still have the, the caveat. If, if the patient's body habitus or whatever makes it you know, would make it unsafe to do at bedside, then then we have to pack up and go to the operating room. Now, I, I think that is our mentality right now is trying to make sure that as many providers stay healthy as possible, not necessarily for us to, you know, to avoid personal exposure, 
But if we see the influx, like they're seeing in New York, we know that we are going to need as many of us as possible on the ground. Yeah, another, the, the trachs, I'm not terribly concerned about with the residents and the ICU fellows. We, we just, we do enough of them that they're mostly competent by the time they're a PGY3 or PGY4. The other procedure I was curious about your thoughts on that are, that's much more rare is the emergency chest tube and the trauma bay. Then that we don't do that that often. I mean, to actually get it in quickly in 30 seconds is something that you have to practice, as well as an ED thoracotomy. And we don't know kind of what exposure risk that is, and we have no idea for most of these trauma patients who are getting chest tubes and thoracotomies. We have no idea what their respiratory symptoms have been for the past seven days because most of them have already been obtunded and intubated from their traumas. So, what are your thoughts on resident involvement, and, and even if we should be doing these procedures at all? You know, from our standpoint, it's maintain and do the care as you, as you normally would. And, and like you said, if I get a gunshot wound to the chest that loses pulses that I would normally do an ED thoracotomy on, I'm going to provide the same level of care that I would for, for a person that came in if this pandemic didn't exist. You know, I'm not going to make the assumption or worry that maybe, you know, if they came in, I don't know the respiratory symptoms, or even if I did and say they were COVID positive, that doesn't mean necessarily they're going to have any difference in, in mortality from another patient. I think what it does, though, is heighten our, our awareness for these procedures where we're using maybe a higher level of PPE than we would, and that for us, that would be the N95 masks as opposed to, to a regular surgical mask. But in these other procedures anyway, we would be using the full gown, gloves, goggles, or eye protection, mask, face shield, and instead of the surgical mask, we're just N95s if we're doing chest tubes or, heaven forbid, an ED thoracotomy in, in this pandemic. Yeah, I'd say we should be taking a, in general, less aggressive approach to doing ED thoracotomies. We should not be doing them in blunt patients, you know, again, unless they lose vitals in front of you and they don't have, you know, like a severe brain injury and even penetrating patients. If they come in with no signs of life and, and we'll do a quick ultrasound and no cardiac activity, then we're not doing anything heroic like cracking their chest and especially in a scenario now, you know, with the COVID crisis. The chest tube is a great question because there's been a ton of talk about innovation, innovation and tracheostomy, and I haven't seen a whole lot about chest tube, which if you have a patient who's got a pneumothorax from trauma, that's from a lung laceration, which means their aerosolization directly from the lung. So that's definitely an aerosolizing procedure and probably even more so than intubating or traching someone. So, so I'd say that should clearly be treated as an aerosolizing procedure. That should be done with everybody in the area of exposure in full PPE and, and including an N95 mask at least. Yeah, completely agree. So we're, we're wrapping up on our hour and something that's been brought up so many times tonight is protocols. And Britt, I want to give you an opportunity to share with the listeners what EAST is doing uh, to help all community hospitals, all level fours, level threes, level twos, level ones, improve their own protocols because we're all at different levels of preparedness heading into this. So uh, as many of us have found in the last you know, week to 10 days, a lot of us have been getting personal messages, emails from people reaching out around the country asking, you know, hey, 
what are you doing with this? Do you have any protocols? Just trying to gather as much information as as we can. And yesterday, and I've seen more collaboration within our region and our regional hospitals than I've I've ever seen. And actually, yesterday, um, uh, I had a phone call with the president of the AAST, David Spain, who reached out looking at what our organizations are doing and how we're kind of supporting the membership. And one thing we, you know, we kind of came up with too, with people reaching out for this is, is there any way we can, can assist and create repositories for our membership there that's looking for these protocols so they're not trying to just create stuff from scratch? All of the organizations and and conjunction with the COT have kind of pledged to work together on our websites, upload protocols that look like they may help the general public out there. I know you can access that through the EAST website. There's a banner that will take you to some COVID-19 resources. You can also go to the AAST website. They have some great resources. And EAST, AAST, the COT, we are all acute care surgeons, trauma critical care providers, and trying to help anyone that is in the wake of this pandemic. I think that's a very laudable effort, and and I know many of us are going to appreciate it. If we bring something from the East website to our home hospital and say, hey, we should do this, how is there some quality control or just some awareness of best practices out there? And that is the thing. And, you know, a little bit of a disclaimer that we have to throw out. You know, this is information that is being forwarded. What I do and, you know, in my medical center may be very different from what you do. Everything from resources or staffing, but being able to have some documents and some standard operating procedures that people can at least use as a framework in trying to create this rather than starting from scratch. I know for, for us, we did a lot of that and started from, from ground zero over the last 14 days to build things. And if this helps people potentially fast track it and adapt it for their own institution, I think that's what these are meant to do. This is not a not saying that this is a best practice or the best way to do it by any means, but this is something that we're offering you know, as a resource in in term in terms of resources uh, like Britt said that that's a great resource the organization's put together a couple other high yield resources the surviving sepsis campaign put out their guidelines document specific for covid uh, and that's available through sccm or the european society of intensive care medicine that that's a great kind of review of all aspects of treatment uh, the dod just put out their COVID clinical practice guideline uh, led by Kevin Chung. And that's actually an excellent document that d- does not just apply to the military. And again, it's got a lot of great practical protocols and algorithms for COVID. And then uh, Carrie Yergi, who's a East member, now massive person on Twitter, put together a fantastic app that anybody can use on their smartphone. And I actually have it on my smartphone. It's got links to pretty much every COVID resource you could hope to find. And anybody who wants to download that, if you go to covid19medapp.com, that has the instructions for downloading it for Android or iPhone, and and that's a a really great product. And I'd like to congratulate Carrie for putting that together. Yeah, I have it on my phone, and it's great. Since we just touched on palliative care, two really great resources speaking about palliative care and COVID. One is the Vital Talk website, and the other one is CAPSI, the Center 
for the advancement of palliative care. Just um, great advice about how to speak with people and also about symptom management. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. And And, uh, we are planning on recording part two uh, Monday evening. We will do our very best to get that edited and turned around within a day if we can. Another great resource is there's a one-page cheat sheet put together by a Seattle intensivist, you know, another hotspot of COVID, Nick Mark. And that's a great resource. We should put a link to that. And, and he'll be one of the guests on Monday's podcast. All right, everyone. Thank you again for having a time with us tonight. And for all of our listeners, stay safe. If you have questions, reach out to us. The Twitter chat at East underscore TraumaCast will continue. Uh, and let us know if you need us. And wash your hands. Thank you. <laughs> Thank wear you. Wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> if you can find one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. everyone. Thanks. Have guys. a great evening. Bye. Bye. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.